Amen. Well, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be rooted in this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But this morning, we're going to be talking about and defining the subject of forgiveness. Now, the reason why uh, I feel like the Lord put on my heart to define forgiveness for us is because forgiveness is such a vital part of society. Communities, families, friendships cannot function without this idea of forgiveness. Because we're sinful, we're going to hurt one another. And so without the idea of forgiveness, it would break apart relationships. However, a lot of times I find that we don't understand forgiveness in the way that God intended. As a pastor and a counselor, I'm often sitting with with people working through difficult and hard situations, and especially in situations where someone has been maybe even um, badly sinned against, and they're seeking hope for counsel. And I have to define forgiveness oftentimes in these situations for them because as we talk through the situation, we realize that what many people mean by the word forgiveness and what God means may be two very different things. And getting one's mind around forgiveness is a difficult task, especially in the context of deep hurt. And one of the reasons is because the world around us has sorely confused this idea of forgiveness. Scott McKnight, he writes, he's a theologian and a writer, and he writes in his book, Slowing Down the Runaway Forgiveness Truck, Is There Such a Thing as Too Much Mercy? He says this, the debate over the meaning of forgiveness is bedeviled by clumsy definitions, confusing categories, and contextual dislocations. Whatever contextual dislocations means. But what are the clumsy and the confusing definitions about forgiveness that we find in the world around us and in our church? Because the reason why it's so important for us to define this is because this is not just a worldly definition. This is definitions that have penetrated the church at large. And many of us maybe have found ourselves believing these things. So what are the worldly views and false theological beliefs about forgiveness? Uh, As we start this section, I want to quote Charles Spurgeon, where he says, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. When it comes to this idea of forgiveness, the reason why some of these things we're about to talk about seem to make sense is because they're full of half-truths. The first half-truth that has permeated um, the cultural Christianity, especially here in America, is the idea of unconditional forgiveness. Unconditional forgiveness. Unconditional forgiveness is to completely forgive someone who has wronged you without the participation of the wrongdoer, as well as the nature of forgiveness as a free and undeserved gift regardless of the aggressor's behavior. It's this idea of I can just forgive someone without them participating in the wrongdoing at all, without them ever having to repent, without a need of any sort of reconciliation. I'm just going to forgive. I'm just going to let it go. But there's a few problems with this idea because one is this seems right. right. As we think about God's grace and mercy, this seems to fit, right? God forgives us even though we don't deserve it. God has died for sin even though we deserve wrath and hell. This this idea of unconditional forgiveness seems right, but it's not. It's a half-truth. It's halfway there. Remember, as Spurgeon reminds us, the difference between discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, but knowing the difference between right and almost right. Half-truths are the greatest dangers because it's easy to slip up within them. So here's a few problems with this idea of unconditional forgiveness. The first is unconditional forgiveness removes the need for repentance. It removes the need for repentance. Though it is true that Christians should have an attitude of forgiveness toward everyone, 
The act or trans, transaction of forgiveness must include the repentance of the offending party. You cannot forgive without the participation of the one who is the offender. Because we all have an understanding of justice, repentance must take place or bitterness will set in. I challenge you to really think back if you've ever tried to exercise unconditional forgiveness and you think about that person, what do you think? There is bitterness in your heart if you're honest. Because it can't be removed without repentance. Also, if forgiveness does not require repentance, then we would have to disregard many passages in Scripture, many passages such as Matthew 18, 15 through 17, or Luke 17, 3 through 4. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence or two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be, as, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Why would there be this continual pursuit to let your brother see the sin that he has done? And that it's only when they see that that you've gained a brother. Luke 17, three through four, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. See that? If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Repentance is a requirement. But often those defending the unconditional forgiveness stance tend to cite passages like Mark eleven twenty five, where it says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So this seems here to develop this attitude of just as you're praying, you can just forgive. But there's a danger in pulling one verse out of context to build an entire theology on, isn't there? This is not correct hermeneutic, and it will cause us to form false theologies. But instead, we must take all of Scripture and, and different things that talk about the same subject and put them together to form the right understanding. And in context with other passages and teaching on Scripture, on scripture about the idea of forgiveness, it would seem that Christ is pointing to the attitude of forgiveness, not the transaction of it. It's talking about as you're praying not to bring back up in your mind maybe offenses that someone's already repented of or the attitude thereof of, of desiring to extend forgiveness to those who've wronged you. But it's not, uh, Christ here is not talking about the transaction of forgiveness. There's a difference, which we'll talk about extensively today as we get there. <clears throat> the second problem when it comes to unconditional forgiveness is that unconditional forgiveness is rooted in the theology of universalism. Unconditional forgiveness is rooted in the theology of universalism. Well, what's universalism? Well, universalism is the basic teaching that everyone in the world is saved because of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, regardless if they believe in Christ or not. That everyone in the world would be saved by Christ's blood. There's no need for a belief in Christ, no need for repentance. And we know that that is not true. That is not what the scriptures teach. That is clear, unbiblical doctrine. A few verses that show us that. John three thirty six: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not just the whole world has eternal life because of what Christ has done. And that's that differentiation, right? The Lord has offered to the whole world salvation. But salvation still has to be, be gotten through a belief and a faith in Christ. Acts 10, 42-43. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness and everyone who believes in him, speaking of Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness. So the idea of forgiveness 
cannot be universal in the sense of it is just given to everyone regardless of their repentance or their belief or their faith. A third problem that we see with unconditional forgiveness is unconditional forgiveness fails to honor God and point people to their need for a savior. Unconditional forgiveness fails to honor God and point people to their need for a savior. If we need forgiveness, then it means that we must need repentance. The idea of forgiveness itself shows us that there is an action needed to be done. And if we choose not to rebuke others or, or make it known to them their transgression, there's no need to repent. And we live in a world right now where that is the prevalent idea that I can do what I want, believe what I want, treat people however I want, your opinion versus mine, I'm good based upon how I feel about myself. There's no need for repentance in a mindset like that, in a belief system like that. Psalm 130, verses three and four says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand under the Lord when he marks iniquities, right? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It is important for us to recognize our sin because it's the recognition of sin that convicts us and reminds us and shows us that we need forgiveness. It is the conviction of sin that leads us to the cross, that leads us to seek the Lord and, and seek his forgiveness. Without that conviction, without that necessity, there is no forgiveness. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Without forgiveness, all will perish. Without repentance, all will perish. The idea of unconditional forgiveness is not a godly or biblical idea. You cannot just let it go. You cannot just choose in your mind to forgive it and that's good enough. That is not a biblical or Christian idea. Another false and worldly um, belief about forgiveness that's related to this unconditional forgiveness idea is therapeutic forgiveness. This is the prevalent idea in modern psychology that really permeates much of our world. And therapeutic forgiveness is very similar to unconditional forgiveness in that it does not depend on the, the offending party to take any responsibility for the offense in order to forgive. But therapeutic forgiveness is really focused on yourself. The point is to rid oneself of the negative feelings of bitterness and anger that comes with unforgiveness. The focus is on you and your feelings of forgiveness. And that's another half-truth, right? One of the benefits, secondary, that happens when we exercise forgiveness the way that the Lord has designed it is that it does free us from the bitterness, from the guilt and the shame of the offense of another. That is true, that's part of it. But that's not the point of it. The point is God's glory, right? Once again, those half-truths are dangerous. Look at what Lindsay Phillips, a psychologist who wrote in the American Counseling Association and, and published it in 2016 in Counseling Today, in an article she titled, The Selfish Act of Forgiving. Here's what she writes. There is also one perspective of forgiveness that might surprise many people. Forgiving is not a kind, selfless act. Rather, it is about self-healing, self-empowerment, and self-liberation. As Desmond Tutu, South Africa's former Anglican Archbishop and recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize said, we don't forgive to help the other person. We don't forgive for others. We forgive for ourselves. Forgiveness, in other words, is the best form of self-interest. That is the point of most people's idea of forgiveness. I don't want to deal with the pain of it any longer. 
Therefore, I'm going to do whatever I can in order to rid myself of it. Everything but confront and require repentance from the offending party. Because in this idea, there is no love for the other person. The thing that we have to wrap our minds around is rebuking someone else's sin is one of the most loving acts that we can do. Because it points someone else and gives the person the opportunity to repent. Sharing the gospel with someone requires reminding people that you are sin, sinful and that God's wrath is on you and that without repentance and faith in Christ, you will go to hell. That is the most loving act that you can do with someone. Because if you believe in a place called hell, if you believe in God and his wrath, then to not care about whether or not someone goes to hell is the most selfish, unloving thing that we can do. That's why it's required that we rebuke those who've sinned against us. Because it's about God's glory and it's about their good. It's not about you. But unfortunately, the world has twisted this idea to be all about us. And so phrases that are associated with this teaching may help you see this maybe more accurately in your life. Phrases like, just let it go. You ever had anybody tell you that? You just gotta let it go. You can't do anything about it. No, you don't need to say anything. Like, just let it go. Just make peace. This is bothering. You're just carrying this with you. You just gotta let that go. Or how about hurt people hurt people. And they can't help it. Because we need to see people as emotionally wounded rather than sinful and evil. So you should forgive through empathy. You just got to see, they don't understand what they're doing. They probably have this background and they're probably raised a certain way. Maybe they've had some abuse in their past. They can't help it. You just got to let that go. Can't confront that. How about this? If you've wronged someone yourself in your past, you need to forgive yourself. Have you heard that? Forgive yourself. There's so much wrong with that statement. Because one, that would imply that you have any authority to forgive yourself. Who are we to forgive ourselves? Are we God? We don't forgive ourselves. We run to the Lord and we accept his forgiveness. We need his forgiveness. Here's maybe one of the most egregious ones that we will ever hear that is talked about most often. When you face hardships in your life and trauma, you need to forgive God for the trauma that you face. And I know we've heard this one. We need to forgive God. What a blasphemous statement. Implying that God is not perfect and holy. We never forgive God. We need his forgiveness. And so we see these ideas, these definitions, these thoughts swirling within our communities, within our churches even. And so therefore we find ourselves confused, not really understanding how to understand this idea, this basic understanding of forgiveness. This idea of forgiveness which is so grounded, so foundational for our faith, yet we don't quite understand it. And so my task today, in the short time that I have, is that we are going to define it biblically. I'm going to try to cover every nuance of that, although time is limiting, so I'm, I'm going to hit every nuance. We may not be able to go deep into everything, but my goal and my hope is that we walk out of here today with a right biblical theological understanding of forgiveness that honors God and allows us to operate in the way that he's called us to. So let's define forgiveness biblically. The Bible makes it clear that our understanding of forgiveness is understood and patterned after our Heavenly Father. Our main passage today, as we talked about earlier, is Ephesians 4.32 where Paul writes, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's so much packed into that one little verse. Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted. That's the attitude. Forgiving one another, there's the action. How? As God in Christ forgave you. So reading this verse, it makes us ask one primary question. How has God forgiven us? If we were to pattern our forgiveness after God's forgiveness, then how has God forgiven? It's a very logical, simple question, right? Well, the first thing that we see is that God's forgiveness requires payment. God's forgiveness requires payment. Which then makes us ask the question, well, why do we need forgiveness? Because everyone has sinned against God. That's our first understanding. Everyone has sinned against God. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. God is holy, and God's moral law is perfect. And if you take ourselves back all the way to Genesis 3, the first sin of Adam and Eve was one of not trusting God and not believing that God was perfect because Satan tempts them in saying that you will be like God and that desire for pride was the first thing that, that we decided is I want to be like God. That's what Adam and Eve chose. And so they disobeyed. They didn't trust that God was good and holy and right in requiring them not to eat of the tree. So they ate and sin enters into the world. The baseline sin for all sin is pride. Us wanting to be God. Us wanting to be like God. And so because of that, we practice sin. We practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's moral law. It's not trusting God and trusting his law. And we can't help ourselves, right? We are guilty of failing to do what God requires. And we also actively do what God prohibits. Thus, sin is a transgression against the law of God. All of us sin. We are guilty of the transgression of sin. Every single person that's ever born, who has ever lived. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's basic. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks, or no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together, all have turned aside, together that they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is Romans 3, 10 through 12. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, speaking of Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We are by nature children of wrath. We have broken God's law. That is true of all of us. And the penalty for that transgression is eternal separation from God in hell. Remember, when we commit something that's wrong, there is a, a penalty. And for between us and God, that penalty is separation from God in hell. Luke 12, 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We should be sober-minded about this. Remember earlier we talked about rebuking someone, pointing out their sin is one of the most loving acts because here we see Luke doing that, whereas Jesus is saying, fear him who can cast you into hell. Don't fear man. Don't fear your, fear your brother. Don't care about the opinions of the people around you. Care about what honors God. Care about the one who has authority to cast you into hell because you haven't made yourself right with him through Jesus. Romans 6, 23a, we talked about it earlier, but the wages of sin is death. Wages, something we earn. 
We deserve death and separation from God in hell. Whoever believes in the Son, John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Because of our sin, we deserve punishment. We have all broken God's moral law, right? So we ask that question, why do we need forgiveness? That's why. So then we see God's forgiveness is on the condition of his grace. God forgives on the condition of his grace. There is a condition for forgiveness. Forgiveness is not unconditional. That does not exist with God. And we've just laid out why. Because there's something that needs to be forgiven, our sin, our transgression against God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've been saved by grace through faith. Faith in who? Faith in Christ. God's grace is this undeserved favor. Because of our sin, we don't deserve forgiveness. But God extends it because of his love and his grace and his mercy. John 2, 1 through 3 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Something I want to point out here is we often confuse God's love which is demonstrated to the whole world through what Christ has done on the cross and the offering of forgiveness to the whole world. There's a difference between forgiveness and love. And sometimes I think we've tried to mesh those things together and get it wrong. God does love the whole world. God did send Jesus Christ to die so that the whole world may be forgiven. But God does not forgive the whole world. There's a requirement, there's a condition for forgiveness, and that's faith in Christ. We need Christ's righteousness. He's a propitiation for our sins, meaning he's a payment. And we are condemned before a holy God, but his righteousness is imputed or credited to us for those who have faith in Jesus, that God sees us as righteous, made right before him in a judicial sense. In a sense of if we were in a courtroom, we are pardoned, forgiven, based upon the righteousness of Christ through faith. That is grace defined, right? Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's demonstration of his love. That's not his forgiveness. That just demonstrates his love that while we were still sinners, undeserving, he dies for us. But John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See the difference between forgiveness and love? God's love, agape love, is based upon his character that he displays regardless of the lovability of the subject. He loves us because he is loving and he demonstrates that love by sending his son Jesus, not because we deserve it, but for his glory. And he offers us forgiveness for our sins. But there's that condition, whoever believes in Jesus will be forgiven. Repentance and faith are the conditions of being forgiven and saved by God. Repentance and faith are the conditions that one needs to be forgiven and saved by God. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 shows us this idea of repentance. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, and understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming you have heard of, about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So rep repentance defined, uh, I want to lay this out for us here so we understand true repentance. Number one, repentance starts with acknowledging and agreeing with God that you have sinned. It begins with the acknowledgement of your sin and agreeing with God that you have sinned and how you have sinned, that you've broken his law, you've broken his holy law. Then number two, we ask for forgiveness from God. Right? We put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and we're renewed in the spirit of our minds. That we remind ourselves how we've learned Christ, that we need forgiveness, and we ask for forgiveness from God. And then we resolve to turn from our sin. So we put off, because of the forgiveness of Christ, we put off the old, right? Which belongs to a former manner of life. We die to ourselves, the Bible would tell us. And then we renew our mind in God's word. If we put off the old, we have to ask ourselves, then what should we do? And the word here tells us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We have to renew our minds in God's word. Understand what his law is, what he requires. And then we walk in obedience to God. We put on the new self that's created after, uh, after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Simply, we turn from the old and we walk in new. But this requires repentance and faith in Christ. So faith, oh, and before I move on, repentance, there's, there's two categories for um, a believer. There's first the judicial repentance, salvation, that one at salvation when you put your faith in the Christ for the first time. But repentance is required throughout life. It doesn't just stop one time as you repent in Christ and believe in Christ and you're forgiven for your sin in a judicial sense and you're made new and you become a child of God, but it's required as a child of God to continually repent and this is kind of known as the parental forgiveness of God that happens as we are sanctified throughout our lives. And this is ongoing. So if you've repented in Christ for the first time, believed in Christ for the first time, that is a habit that you continue throughout the rest of your life as a believer. This is called progressive sanctification. Repentance is a gift from the Lord. It's a part of his grace that we could recognize our sin and we continue to confess our sin, and he continues to forgive us of our sin every time that we confess. And that's important. Um, so just stow that away. We'll talk about that more in a moment. And then faith, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is what gifts us forgiveness, faith in Christ, putting our faith in him, Romans 10, 9 through 13 lays out this idea of faith. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Justification is the action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. So with, with the heart one believes and is justified. There's that idea of faith. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This idea of faith is where we find justification. And we see that really the two requirements there in the beginning of Romans 10, 9, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That, that requires a belief that he is Lord, belief in who he says he is, belief that he is the son of God, that he is Lord of all. 
and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the resurrection is the proof that he is the son of God. You must believe in those two things, have faith in those two things. Faith is knowing with trust, trusting that that is true. It's not just a head knowledge. It's not theoretical in belief, but it's true and practical, and it comes out in our actions as we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We live if that's true, and everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. As it says here, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's with faith that we are justified, made right in the sight of God. Philippians 3, 8 through 9 speaks of this idea of faith where Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 reminds us of this gift. He has delivered us from the, dominion, the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness comes with the condition of God's grace and on the condition of our repentance and faith in Christ. However, number three, God's forgiveness does not mean the elimination of consequences in this life. God's forgiveness does not mean the elimination of consequences in this life. It is true that when we put our faith in Christ, we are made right before God. That is true, no matter what you've done. If you believe that and you mean that, no matter what you've done, that is true. However, consequences may remain, depending on what you've done. Let's look at David as a picture of this when he sinned against Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. I'm not gonna go there for time's sake to read all of it because... My time is going quickly, but let me just remind you of what happened there. David didn't go out to war. He's on his rooftop. He sees Bathsheba. There's lust in his heart. He takes her, lays with her, and then they, she gets pregnant. And David tries to cover it up, so much so that he murders his best friend, Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband tries to, every which way to cover it up. When he couldn't cover it up, he sends him to the front of the battle. The army pulls away from him and he's killed in battle. Trying to look like he didn't actually do that, right? But we know in reading the, the account that David did that on purpose. And God knew that. And so in 2 Samuel 12, God confronts David through the prophet Nathan. And David's confronted with a sin and then David understands the gravity of his sin and he does repent. We see that. And Nathan told David that God would forgive him of his sin in 2 Samuel 12, 13. Yet David still dealt with the consequences of that sin for the rest of his life. And if we read through the rest of 2 Samuel, we see that Nathan told David there would be violence among his family in 2 Samuel 12, 10. The baby that David conceived with Bathsheba would die 2 Samuel 12, 14. David's son Amnon raped David's daughter Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 22. Absalom, another of David's sons, killed Amnon for that in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. We see this account. And then later, Absalom attempts to take over David's kingdom, 2 Samuel 15 through 18. So although the Lord does forgive David, David still had to wrestle with and deal with the consequences of his choice. We have to understand that God disciplines those he loves. The Hebrews 12, 9 through 11 reminds us, says, besides this, we have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them 
But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Padeya is the word here that we see uh, for discipline, and it's the rearing of a child. Training and discipline is the definition. Its usage is for discipline, training, and education of children, instruction, chastisement, correction. These are some of the, the words that it's translated into. And that when we sin, even after becoming a child of God, God still utilizes our sin and our sinful choices to discipline us, to, to make us holy, to renew us, to sanctify us. And as Hebrews reminds us, Sometimes this discipline is painful. When we sin, especially in ways that really harm others, we may deal with lasting consequences as we saw with David. And God allows us to face the consequences of our sin for the sake of training us in righteousness and making us holy. Repentance is a part of the Christian life. And when we sin, we must do whatever it takes to make restitution for the sin that we've committed. But it doesn't mean that the consequences always go away. But 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11 shows us this heart of repentance that we should all have. He says, starting in verse 8, For even if I've made you grieve my letter, Paul talking about his first letter to the church in Corinth, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for, it, for I see that the letter grieved you though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. Someone who's truly repentant understands the consequences and is willing to take them and willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. But at sometimes, making it right doesn't mean a full restitution of the relationship. But we should seek that, if at all possible. So I want to summarize before we end enter into our last section, which all of you have probably been waiting for, is how do we define our forgiveness, right? Chris Braun, in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, lays this out really well. I love how he puts this, so I want us to see this for ourselves. When, he's, when he defines God's forgiveness, it is a commitment to the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. Right there is a good definition for us to understand God's forgiveness. It's a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. So how do we define forgiveness for believers? Our forgiveness, well, it goes back to what we said in the beginning. Our forgive, we are to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So who should we forgive? Let's start there. Some passages in Scripture clearly imply that we can only forgive those who ask for it while others seem to imply that we should forgive everyone who sins against us, regardless of whether they ask for it or not. We talked about that earlier. Luke 17, three through four says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Although Mark eleven twenty five says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So how can we understand this discrepancy that we've talked about? Perhaps the best way is to make a distinction between the transaction of forgiveness and the attitude of being willing to forgive. Right? The attitude of being willing to forgive. 
So what is the attitude of love? A willingness to forgive. How do we understand this? Even though we may not be, be able to fully reconcile with everyone who sins against us, although reconciliation is part of forgiveness, and it is part of what we should desire and what should we should strive after. But sometimes, as we talked about earlier, the consequences may not allow that. Our attitude toward them should never be one of anger, bitterness, resentment, or any kind of ill will. We should also treat them very kindly and graciously. This is our attitude and a willingness to forgive. Romans 12, 17 through 21 makes it clear. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are commanded to love everyone as God loves the world. So we must desire their best, which means that we will do everything we can to help them to repent. And we will always be ready to reconcile, as God says to us. Psalm 86, 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So this helps us understand the attitude of forgiveness. The attitude of forgiveness is based upon love, primarily God's love, which he's put in our hearts as believers, and he gives us the strength to love as he has loved us. So we should have an attitude of forgiveness towards even our enemies, even those who refuse to repent. And we should do whatever it takes to help them repent. We see here in Romans 12 where they're either even feeding and clothing the enemy, heaping burning coals on their heads. This is not uh, to mask our vengeance. This is not to do it so that they would feel bad for what they did to us. But it's to love them like Christ so that they would understand their need for forgiveness from a holy God and their need to repent and make things right. And that we stand always ready to reconcile, always ready and willing to forgive. At the moment that they're ready to come and say, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, we're ready to be able to say, I forgive you. Which then brings us to the transaction of forgiveness. So what does this look like when someone does repent? Because oftentimes we get this one wrong too. Just as God does not make his promise of pardon to people unless they repent, we cannot actually say I forgive you to people unless they admit their sin. Therefore, the transaction of forgiveness is conditional in that we can only be fully reconciled to those who repent. If someone refuses to repent, there will remain a chasm between us and them in terms of relationship. That is just the facts. And this is tough for us sometimes to wrap our heads around because this means people who are friends, family members, church members. Those who refuse to repent of their sin are not forgiven by God. This may mean in the salvific sense but this also may mean in the parental sense. You may be saved before the Lord, but if you have an area where you're unwilling to repent, then not only are you not forgiven by those that you've sinned against, but you find yourself not forgiven by God for that, and it creates a distance between you and God in the parental sense. And if you're able to go on in longevity with that unrepentance, it may actually be clarification that you're not truly saved in the judicial sense. We should take very seriously this idea of if someone rebukes us, if we've sinned against someone else, we should be grieved in a godly grief and we should be willing to repent. And we should be willing to forgive in the same way. But if, they're, if someone's not willing to repent, the consequences of a broken relationship with the offended person, offending person will continue. Luke 17, 3 
says that our part of responsibility to those who sin against us is to humbly and lovingly confront them. If we have truly dealt with our own heart attitudes first. So we gotta follow Matthew 7 and take the log out of our own eye. And in preparing to rebuke, it should be done in love. And this should be a normal practice of the church. One of the biggest issues within a body of believers is the unwillingness to repent, uh, unwillingness, unwillingness to rebuke one another, and the unwillingness to be reconciled to one another. This is what creates an attitude within a church body where everyone pretends like everything's okay. Where we say, ah, you know, it's fine. I'm just gonna, I just don't trust them anymore. But I'm gonna forgive them. You know, un, that, that theology of unconditional forgiveness. I'm not gonna talk about it. I'm not gonna address it. I'm just gonna let it go. And you wonder why there's no depth to relationships. And that's sin against God. It's actually a command that we go and confront when we've been sinned against. It's the most loving act that we can do for one another is to rebuke one another when we've sinned against one another so that we may be forgiven and reconciled. This honors God. This brings glory to God. This is most loving to one another and this develops deep relationship with each other. And if they recognize they're wrong and repent from it, we can be reconciled to them. That's the beautiful thing. There is nothing that can't be repented of. And in most cases, there's nothing that can't be reconciled. Although there may be some things that have lasting consequence we'll talk about in a moment. But in normal relationship, especially as believers, no matter how bad someone's hurt your feelings, it's not about you. It doesn't matter. It's an opportunity for us to be reconciled to the Lord, reconciled to one another, and to grow deeper in our faith. And we should pursue one another. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, we talked about earlier, but it makes it clear we cannot be fully reconciled to those who have not repented because if we could, there would be no reason for this continued process, right? I'll remind you, he says, if, you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So there's the... We have to go. We have to tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, no gossip. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. There's reconciliation. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Once again, this is not going and telling everyone else and not dealing with it. That's harmful gossip. But this is taking one or two trusted friends, brothers who know both parties and going to sit down and try to work it out. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This means to treat him as an unbeliever. That's not a shunning in terms of shaming. That's, hey, we need to start back over and realize this person may not be a believer and he, he may not be in the family of God. Therefore, we need to treat him as a Gentile and unbeliever and we need to share the gospel. We need to pursue this person with the gospel. However, there may not be a reconciliation of a relationship there for a while until they repent. However, for those who do repent of their sin, we are commanded to forgive them as God in Christ has forgiven us. Our forgiveness is not based on a feeling but a promise of pardon that we make in order to honor God and love the person. Forgiveness is a promise. That means that we're promising a few things. The first promise we make when we say, I forgive you, because this is the promise that the Lord makes to us, is I will not remind you of this sin. I will not remind you of this sin unless it would be absolutely necessary to do so for your good. What do I mean by unless it would be absolutely necessary? If this is a repeated pattern, we may need to sit down and talk about why there's a pattern of this same thing for the purpose of repenting, not for the purpose of throwing it in your face, right? Number two, the promise that we make is I will not mention it to anyone else unless it would be absolutely necessary as we talked about in Matthew 18. 
And when I say I forgive you, I'm promising that I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. I'm promising not to bring it back up to myself. And all this we can do as a choice in love, not based upon our feelings. Yes, when someone sins against you, it's gonna be tempting to think about it. But in that moment, we capture that belief and we repent of that ourselves. I'm not gonna do that because God has reminded us often in his word that, that he does not remember our sin any longer. He chooses not to remember it, not because he doesn't know it's there, but because of Christ. And we are to forgive as God has forgiven us. We are commanded to forgive, so we are sinning if we refuse to make this promise. Therefore, forgiveness is a matter of obedience rather than a feeling. Remember Luke 17, how many times I gotta forgive? Every time they repent, without question. It is also sin for us to break our promise after we make it, and we keep it regardless of how we feel. This is patterned after our Heavenly Father. Now, we are to be reconciled to the offending party as much as it is possible to be reconciled. There are certain consequences of sin that, that will not allow for reconciliation fully. I gave us three. Um, they won't be up here, but trauma, issues of trauma, and that, that's a broad kind of category, but things like murder, things like someone who's physically abusing you, regular, things like that. It may not be wise, it may not be possible to be reconciled fully. It may not be safe to be reconciled to someone who asks for your forgiveness, forgive them in your heart, but it may not be safe to go back into an intimate relationship with that person, right? Abuse, sexual abuse, things of that nature may not allow us in this life to be fully reconciled. Basically matters where safety has been violated. In this life, those consequences may continue in, in some regard. It doesn't mean that you can't be reconciled before the Lord and in your heart to that person, and, and you can say, I forgive you, but it doesn't mean that you do life with them in certain situations. Right? Consequences are, are important for the sake of justice. A willingness to accept consequences of sinful behavior is actually good evidence that the offender is truly repentant. If someone is truly repentant, they're gonna understand that. And they're gonna know that that is part of it. And they'll accept those consequences. However, in the majority of the situations of repentance, we should be fully reconciled to the person. And think about how much glory the Lord receives. When we take a situation where there's strife, bitterness, sin, anger, and not only do we forgive one another, but we are able to be reconciled, restored, and grown because of it. This takes humility, not pride, to forgive. This takes trust in God, not pride, to forgive. This takes the help of God to forgive. So as we close, just want to hit it kind of rapid fire, because we talked about a lot, so just to summarize it up. What does our forgiveness look like? First, it's immediate. We forgive immediately when someone repents. We forgive repeatedly to those who repent. We forgive lavishly to those who repent. And why should we forgive? It's always gospel motivated. It's always based upon Christ, on God's glory, not our own. Trusting in his power to help us forgive in the way he's forgiven us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's difficult when we think about this subject not to see our own faults and our own failures in these areas. 
Lord, but when we think about our own hearts and our own sin, we see how much we don't deserve your forgiveness. Yet, you've forgiven based upon the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Based upon your grace. God, help us to trust you. Help us to forgive others as you've forgiven us. And help us be restored to one another when, we've, when we do sin to each other, against each other. Help us to love one another based upon your character, not based upon our feelings. And let our hope be in you and let you get glory as we obey you in the area of forgiveness. In Jesus' name.